Sincerely, me. In honor of Dear Evan Hansen, what's the name of the best song from the musical about your high school experience? I'm Matt Patches, and there's only one obvious answer here, which is one day more every day. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and uh, mine's going to be a fictional song, but it would be titled No, Really, I'm Cool, beginning parentheses, popularity is a construct, end parentheses. I assume that you've jazzy. written this song already, too. It's not. Fictional. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, I am David Ehrlich. I just Googled. Uh, Aladdin songs because that felt like I would probably leave into a right answer and sure enough if a whole new world can't describe high school I don't know what can gentlemen you can't fight in here this is the war room fine I can hear you now Dimitri clear and plain and coming through fine I'm coming through fine too eh good then well then as you say we're both coming through fine good well it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room number 366. It's Pandemic 79 for the week of Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. And on that day in 1994, Friends premiered on television. Oh, wow. Ironically, telling us life was going to be a certain way. And then we all moved to New York and whoops. I mean, apartments I got, are more I, expensive. I got coffee with my friends in New York when I moved here. <laughs> um, David, do we have any review? Oh, I'm sorry. Katie's not here this week. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's going to take the week off. She's going uh, to Los Angeles. She's gone Hollywood. She's got Hollywood. She did her Emmy coverage for Vanity Fair. Uh, it was, uh, you know, wide ranging. And we're going to give our dumb thoughts here. But if you want to check that out, go check her out on the Little Gold Men podcast. And back here next week. All right, now, David, do we have any reviews? We, we actually have several reviews, and I will read them to you oh. now. Uh, Isaac from L.A. says, David probably needs to read this one. That's ominous. Uh, Fighting in the War Room is right up there with Blank Check as one of the most insightful and entertaining pop culture podcasts around. The one downside is that after listening, I often find myself speaking in an approximation of David's speech pattern, which is a mix Whoa. of ironic detachment and what I assume is nervous energy, delivered in run-on <laughs> sentences that speed up and slow down, seemingly at random, often punctuated by short, exasperated bursts and culminating in a dramatic climax where he ends his thought at half speed, dramatically emphasizing the last few words. Anyway, (laughs) I was on a conference call yesterday and could not stop talking like him. Great work on the show. I look forward to it every week. I am so sorry to hear that, Isaac from L.A. Uh, I hate everything about how I talk, including the speech pattern. Um... Emo Mike 620 <laughs> says, one of the best. Hey, y'all, I've been a long time blanky. Noticing a theme here. And a fan of David Ehrlich's reviews and end of your videos. About two years ago, I decided to give this a try. Oh, this is an interesting tidbit. Because Ehrlich always brought it up on blank check. Hmm. The amount of that shit I've gotten not, for supposedly That is not, not true. It's just not. We can go back to the tape, clearly. Uh-huh. But this, this is a lie. And I had become an avid follower of his Twitter account. I had already loved and recognized Katie from her famous Blank Check episodes, but now I have fallen in love with the whole cast. Matt Patch's life reminds me of my relationship with my young daughter at home. And Dave Seven are the same kind of nerd. Dave Seven and I are the same kind of nerd, I assume. Now I have also become a listener of Storm, Old School Losty Here, and Galaxy Brain. But that's all because wow. of this lively little <laughs> podcast, Emo Mike 620, on us. 
The conversations on the show are priceless, and it's always nice to see their take on current films and pop culture. It's always a highlight of my week, and this is my favorite podcast, alongside Blank Check. David, it was me and Twitter telling you that Stay Alive was my wife's favorite movie. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Props to your wife. Thank you for the constant inspiration. P.S. Jeffrey, the dude Lebowski, would not be vaccinated. Ooh, a controversial bomb curled at the end there. Um, I could... Yeah, I probably agree with that. He probably just doesn't realize it. I don't know. Maybe like, the dude abides go. with, uh, I don't know, protecting people's public health. Although, do you uh, think that the bowling alley requires masks? That's the real question. I could yeah. see some. I mean, some he could just like there. live in his own his own house away from everyone, not need to mask up because he's not seeing other people. Uh, Sean McKenzie 28 finally says, finally not in that, like, I've been waiting for Sean McKenzie 28's review, but it's the last review of this episode. Um, it says, great podcast. Although in my heart, I've been waiting for Sean McKenzie 28's yeah, review. I'm we, just, we, I haven't been, like, stomping my foot, you know, like, waiting for it, you know, like in a cartoon. Uh, not enough is said for the heroes in the editing room of Fighting in the War Room, which is just Dave Seven, for inserting some excellent music in between segments. Not only for purposes of skipping discussions about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Sorry, Dave. Hey, Dave, curious if you went the normal or hard route on this No, no, you, no. To get to something no. a bit more interesting to me, but also for purposes of bolstering my playlist game. Katie, Dave, Matt, and David are excellent hosts in their own right, but when they come together, it is magic. The discussions are always funny and enlivening and have been such a great escape from the hellish landscape left in the wake of COVID-19. Easily the best film podcast you can find, whether you're a Marvel buff, a slightly pretentious Criterion collector, or someone commonly disassociates from collective, collective pop culture in intervals only to be pulled back into the deep end. I happen to be all three. You can tell all four hosts have genuine affection for each other, and that shows most in their sibling like squabbling at times, which is most commonly over when to end a segment. True. Uh, the victim of these disagreements is usually the listener, however, because <laughs> our listeners are always our victims. I could just as easily listen <laughs> to another full hour or two of these four talking about films. Also, as an aside, since I have long run out of things to talk about with my partner due to being stuck inside for a year and a half, I have used the fun discussion prompt at the beginning of each show as a dinner table conversation starter. A pro tip if you've ever heard one. A pro tip if you've... How best to say this? A pro tip if you've ever heard one. I don't know. Tough sentence, but I get what you mean. Love the podcast. Keep doing what you're doing. Can't wait to hear what Charlie and Asa think about the power of the dog. Funny you should mention that, Sean McKenzie, 28. I just did, I went to the park with Asa yesterday in some overalls, and, uh, well, this is a... You were wearing he, overalls. He was wearing overalls. I was not. Um, and oh. while this is, in light of the context of the power of the dog, a reasonably fucked up thing to say, um, which you'll, you'll know more if you've read the book or after you see the movie, uh, he was serving me some Benedict Cumberbatch in Power of the Dog looks. Uh, not, not quite the same menace. I would hope. None of us um, know what that means yet. But you will. You will. Uh, but um, uh, he looked cute. And I love him. And I hope he doesn't turn out like Ben to come back to the power of the dog. We don't um, know what that means. So that's a, not a relevant. Just not a nice, say. not a nice guy. That's what you're I'm way doing. ahead of the audience here. You got to okay. be in, with the people um, like us. Apparently there's a book. So in theory, someone could have read there the book. There is a book. I read, read the book. book. I read the book as soon as I saw the movie. It's one of those is Benedict Cumberbatch in it. And you want to read the book. Because I don't know. All right. Anyway, Our overalls in it really is the operative question true. to connect the stories to the book. Uh, thank you so much for these reviews. Please leave us a review on Fighting in the War Room on iTunes. We will clearly read it live on the show. Uh, thanks.
last Sunday was the 73rd Primetime Emmy Awards. If you want uh, dissection and expertise, uh, this is not come to the right podcast for you. Okay. Oh, no, no. I mean, like, there's a lot of people who watch all the TV who are going to break down all the TV. This is more like we watch TV Emmys. Yeah, we watch some TV. And uh, I know you guys, uh, my people here, uh, my co-hosts have watched the the big winners uh, from last night. So, but it is sort of weird as somebody who uh, has tangentially paid attention to the Emmys, uh, how much uh, like the capability of there being like a sweep um, becomes like sort of the story. So my view of the Emmys was I'm not watching it, but I am because of work I'm doing uh, very plugged into all Marvel social media. So (laughs) I actually got... The weird angle on the Emmys where, one, I was watching Cry Macho during most of it, and two, the reactions I were seeing was just to WandaVision losing. Basically, like, nothing else. Wow. Uh, well, well, it occurred to me, maybe I've always been in this spot because, like, what, since 2015, that was, like, Game of Thrones' first year that they were, like, a serious Emmy contender. So I think where most of Hollywood's probably big story is, you know, Netflix and Apple TV have finally run away with the best outstandings. Um, for me, it was just really noticeable uh, how like divorced my genre television is from my other television. And I wonder if genre television can be the only thing that becomes like a group watch because of people like me. Am I the reason that WandaVision and Mandalorian had so many fucking nominations this year when really it was all for like The Crown and Ted Lasso to lose? What do you mean by group watch? I mean, a lot of people watch Ted Lasso and The Crown ostensibly. Or do you, yeah. or are you saying they don't? No, no, I think they do. But I, it's like, uh, I haven't seen anything since Game of Thrones that has really been appointment television watching. I think uh, the Netflix and Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, is, I've seen people appointment watching it. Uh, but it's also weird because it drops on a streaming service. Uh, but the crown, you know, sort of comes in waves, waves of crown. Um, but something like the Mandalorian and WandaVision seemed like, I don't know, WandaVision, that might just be my pocket. But definitely season one of the Mandalorian was like the uh, water cooler show of the streaming era since, I don't know. Well, Orange it seems like Black. in the last two years, we've seen a lot of television going back to episodic or going back to weekly. Um, yes. In, in, a, in a welcome way to my brain where I'm just like the megaton drop of of television binge season yeah the crown is really the exception to the rule now especially in terms of uh in terms of you know the big emmy shows and actually most shows seem to have adopted the amazon way which is like three episodes up front just to make sure you can get a like you can rev up and start watching and then you go weekly for a few weeks to try and build up some buzz. I mean, it, I think it's worked for Ted Lasso. Surely it's worked for Mandalorian and, and WandaVision to, to great success. I guess not great Emmy success. I guess the question is, does it does it matter if, it, if these shows won Emmys? It's it's seems strange to see them even in the lineup of like outstanding drama series. But I guess in a world with Game of Thrones up there, why why wouldn't Mandalorian be there or why wouldn't? It's a, yeah, the Mandalorian and This Is Us in the same category is right. Pretty I mean, not, amazing. Not as bizarre as SNL and Hacks being in the same category, or Hamilton <laughs> and WandaVision, or whatever the case was. Um, 
that was Cobra Kai and Emily in Paris. Best yeah, comedy. Ham- the Hamilton the rule year. needs to be amended. Um, they they are just fundamental. Filming a as impressive as some of the the technical elements were of capturing Hamilton on video. It is it is simply not comparing like with like to put a film Broadway show uh, up against a scripted television. I mean, wasn't that American Utopia as well? That was also nominated. Do you think that should have been? It was. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, it's the same. Actually, the West Wing special that was also I mean, nominated the thing was is another stage not, show. <laughs> there are 900 Emmy categories. We only see it. It's like the Grammys. We only see sure. a, few, a few of them aired. There is a whole other Emmy ceremony. Um, and there is, I am sure, uh, a category for the filmed live performances. I mean, there's already... Variety show. There's a place to do this. It was very incongruous. Uh, hardly the biggest complaint that anybody had about last night's Emmys, but it was very strange all the same. Um, the one thing that everybody loved uniformly, of course, was Scott Frank's acceptance speech, uh, which you know, <laughs> seemed to play like gangbusters. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, on my Twitter, three feed, music playoffs. Were... How, I mean, how do you feel about that? Uh, it should. There's so much anger for when people get played off, but something about Scott Frank getting played off three times and and hand waving them away um infuriated Listen, people is this it, is this what is this it, his i mean his speech was awful it was it was really awful i mean he did a poor job of reading the room it was um, a bit guy concise. in the in your mfa uh yeah tone. and it had been written and so he knew in advance that it would be awful and take that much time um at the same time i mean like it was it was bad television it was hard to watch and it was uncomfortable um and then when you compare it to something as succinct and affecting um, as like Michaela Cole's speech that she gave right afterwards. I mean, the contrast Amazing. is obvious, but at the same time, you know, to see, pe- <laughs> I mean, it is a little pea-brained how the world views the the lens of what they see on television. Um, seeing the way that people described Scott Frank on my timeline was was kind of upsetting. <laughs> In what way? Like, what did you? What were I you mean, seeing? Just, Give us described, the worst. I mean, they're basically talking about him like he was fucking pond scum and should be in jail. Uh, and it was like, yeah, it, what he did was tacky. And um, he should probably rethink. And there are definitely, you know, I'm not going to stop people or slap them in the wrist from extrapolating bigger cultural mores. And, and yeah, so I mean, the takeaway here was here's extreme white guy energy. Right. The only, the um, only thing, I'll, yeah, the only but, person who can get away with uh, this the, is if you're a white guy. And I'm sure none of the chatter online is going to ruin, you know, harsh his buzz too much for the enormous success that he's had with Queen's Gambit. But you know, we all we go on the internet and you see people talking about war crimes at the same volume and intensity <laughs> that you do seeing them talking about. I'll, I'll tell a, you what, uh, though, it woke me up. Like speech. the Emmys was a uh, a muted affair. I I actually am a big fan of of Cedric the Entertainer, but this was the most CBS level comedy, <laughs> uh, CBS level event that I've I've watched in some Wait, time. Was it that was hacky shit? Oh, this was, yeah, like, the Emmys was on CBS from, uh, and it felt like a From sitcom. Reggie Watts at gunpoint at every fucking commercial break, having to say, <laughs> this is CBS. This is really CBS. This is what it is. If you ever turn this on for some reason, I think I, I was watching on Paramount Plus, though. So it is a uh, next level streaming. This is the dream, right? Uh, uh, an award show that's actually streaming on a platform that I subscribe to. Is this the future? The Tonys are I, only streaming I saw it on terrestrial digitally. television. Wow. Do you have Tony's a satellite? How do you do that? Digitally? No, I watched it on fucking CBS. Uh, I didn't 
I didn't watch the Tony. The Tonys, I didn't realize they were streaming. The Tonys are next this this coming week, and they're only on like Hulu Live and it's AT&T like Eurovision Live now. I mean, that's going to be yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't imagine how that. Maybe this is too backward thinking of me, but I can't imagine how that doesn't completely. Actually, it's on Paramount Plus too because it's CBS, um, but they're not airing it on traditional TV. Yeah, one day that may be the norm, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, it's funny. We were talking before we started recording the irony that the Emmys broadcast is in and of itself bad television, which seems sort of inexcusable. Um, the Oscars, however flawed that broadcast is, uh, are not a bad film. Um, and uh, I guess the Tonys are closer because they can have, I suppose, bad elements of live stage performance that are captured on camera. But it's obviously not as oh, direct yeah. a correlation as uh, as the Emmys. Um Although the Cedric the Entertainer's opening number, uh, paying homage to Bismarcky, I thought was fun and random enough. That... I mean, we all wanted to see Rita Wilson rap. Yeah, and then there yeah, she was worked. rapping. But like the doing the her bits, best, Chet Hayes. Even even among uh, award show bits, which is a, a very historically low bar, the bits were like like that. That he should be sent to jail for. <laughs> there was a those are Mike Pence fly bit on the Emmys. I. Yeah. I I was catapulted backward in time. That's not fair. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to take me back to the Trump era. That's not can fair. I, can I say? <laughs> can I say the most da- on-brand David Ehrlich on this Please. comment on this podcast comment right now, which is that during the Mike Flynn, the Mike Pence fly bit, which I read about on Twitter, I was actually um, taking a break from the Emmys to watch a Argentinian art film. <laughs> it's coming to. It's coming. You took to a break from the ceremony to watch yeah. a whole movie. Wow, uh, I did. <laughs> I came back, and you know what? I didn't feel like I had missed all that much. But Cedric the Entertainer is a guy that I tend to enjoy, and I thought the opening was fun. And then, uh, to whatever degree he was responsible for some of those bits, they were pretty brutal. But what can you do? It's not like he Scott Franked out there. I think the collect, like the cumulative time that he took, was probably less than the time of Scott Frank's speech. <laughs> Um, well, this is, uh, I guess, to wrap up on the Emmys. Well, we should talk because... about the winners, right? Well, yeah, that's I, I wanted to talk about the, you know, uh, Netflix has, it's weird. Netflix now around for more than 10 years, throwing just gobs and gobs of, of money to try and win every award, whether it's the Oscars or the Emmys or whatever, Golden Globes. But they really have never won big prizes, certainly not at the Oscars yet. And I I realize like this is the first time they've won best drama. The crown has not won before because there was this game of Thrones blockade. Um, and then handmaid's tale kind of crept up su- succession one. Um, and it took a global pandemic, I guess, to decimate the competition and pave the way for the crown, which was fantastic. The season of the crown we've talked about on the podcast was, was fabulous. Uh, everyone at the top of their game. Uh, I just, it's strange that, Netflix is doing it. What season four? They barely. What what shows on Netflix last till season four? As someone who has you know no room for any trivia in my brain, um, I am very surprised to hear what you just said that this was the first time the Crown won. I guess I am conflating it in my head with all of its Golden Globe wins or something because I just always I feel like I've seen the the cast of the Crown on stage together um, so many times. Uh, and I guess it's interesting in a way that um, that Olivia Coleman is now the second actress to win for the same character. Sorry, I just dropped my phone for the same character in the same show. And I thought it was funny that The Crown had their entirely own Emmys 
effectively in London. Right. With her staying up till five in the morning. Um, that was amusing. Uh, you know your show has done well for itself with an awards group where you need to ha- essentially have a satellite venue just for you. Um, I don't know why Josh O'Connor, I'm sure he was in L.A. for, for reasons, but um, sad that he wasn't there with the rest of his, class, uh, rest of his crew. Uh, yeah, I mean, The Crown's a good show. The, the, there's been a lot of Emmys So White commentary around the winners. Um, I did think that, you know, that Michaela Colt's win was, was, was really satisfying. Um, and I think just spoke to such a brighter, like TV is such a wide world now and there's so much television and it did feel like one of the only wins of the night that spoke to uh, a broader swath of what television can do. Um, rather than just giving the awards to the same shows over and over again. Um, I mean, there's so many repeat winners, um, and those repeat winners all struck a certain, um, you know, uh, prestige, middle brow tone um, aimed well, at That's a the particular- thing. Like, how does this, how do we, I mean, the, we've spent a lot of time talking and thinking about the Oscars and how they've widened the voting base and the limited number of films and the, the growing number of people who can vote on them, it seems like diversity and change is, is more plausible or at least an, at an accelerated pace to shake up what Oscar movies means and what could become victorious in the end. The Emmys, I would imagine, face a, a much greater challenge in truly diversifying um, both both the voter base and then just the uh, the amount of shows, the sheer amount of yeah. shows that could I mean, be possible. You'd split the vote so many times. And uh, yeah. I, I mean, as you hear from Dave earlier, you know, Dave is talking about his individual like little fiefdom of television that he owns, the geek centric shows. I mean, television <laughs> is it's so big that you have all these sort of siloed realities. And then I feel like I, I you know, I can't really speak with any authority to how the, the Emmys uh, voting body works. Other than I thought it was hilarious when Conan O'Brien stood at salute. Uh, to the president <laughs> of the TV Critics Association, whatever the fuck it's called, TV Critics Conan Association. Conan really doing else. the work last night. Um, the Co- Conan say. crushing I'm truly one of the greatest Americans we've ever had um, and showing why at every opportunity. But um, it, it does feel like television as a medium is so ubiquitous. I and mean, it's such a fabric of our life where like cinema is sort of a choice and you leave the house, you know, at least you used to. Um, and theater, again, its own little world, television is in all of our homes. It, it, it's this big cultural conversation. And when you have a show that's as monolithic and as cross-demographically beloved as something like Ted Lasso, it does feel like there is a greater inevitability behind it winning an award like this than there does around uh, an Oscar movie. Um, you know, even we haven't had very many major Oscar movies recently of similar uh, square footage in the cultural conversation just because the studios aren't... It's not a fault of the academies, really. I mean, it's the studios are not making those movies anymore because they're putting all the only movies the studio is making are superhero movies. And that's why the only movie recently that was able to sort of straddle both worlds in terms of critical acclaim and cultural footprint was Black Panther. But um, there's... Yeah, I mean, like a, something the size of Queen's Gambit or Ted's Lasso feels kind of undeniable, um, which... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's these wards are kind of useless to begin with. They certainly aren't doing much to confer any greater value on a show that is already uh, has such a big imprint. Um, but you can see what it can I do to a it, flea bag. You can see what it can do to I May Destroy You. Uh, it's a different story. Yeah, I, I think the greatest, in my view, of what the television landscape is, 
it, there would be a diversity of winners. And so it's weird to me at this point that, like, I'm not saying that The Crown and Ted Lasso aren't great shows. I'm saying that it looks weird for the Emmys to present them as, like, and here are some sweep categories. Yeah. But that's the weird well, thing. That's always weird. been the weird thing about the Emmys, where it's like it's actually hard to have. It's not like the Oscars, where someone might have like the breakout perf- supporting actress performance. And then someone like the direction might be astounding, and you'd give that person and then best picture something else. It's like Ted Lasso, really funny show. I just like everybody on it, and that's why it works. It works because Sudeikis and all the other bit players are like really good. So of course everyone sweeps, right? Like the Crown, everyone's really good. That's the point. Yeah, yeah, but the crown has like a different cast every you know season and every two years. You know, every know two years. Every the, two years. Every the, two years. Two I'm years. sorry. Yeah, I mean, and also Diana really, wasn't on it last season. I what think what really points to a failure with what the Academy is doing, um, even more so than the, the winners, are when you see four people from the same show, something like The Handmaid's Tale, nominated for the same category. Which is not to take away from the excellence of any of the performances right. in the show that I absolutely do not watch. But uh, it's just that with the sheer volume of television out there, it does suggest that people are only looking so far afield. Right. And of course, campaigning has a lot to do with that and where the money is being spent. Like but you're telling me the the, be- the supporting actress in a comedy series, three of them are from Saturday Night Live? Like yeah, <laughs> all I mean, of the just, television? Yeah, it just it just it's it would be hard to be a voting member of that body and not feel like you did the work to really look at what was out there. So uh, I don't know. I think I, I, it's hard for me to care too much about the Emmys. Uh, <laughs> but we but watch I, a lot of television and the Emmys bottle it up and it's a, it's a good excuse to talk about TV. Um, yeah. yeah. I didn't well, think, we'll I see. Think, uh, like, like even, if, even if these weren't the winners that would have chosen, we do think that there was something monolithic about them. I, I'm trying to think of like if bad shows won. I mean, it wasn't like watching the Kaminsky method win awards. I mean, Ted Lasso. No, is a good, good show. shows won. Like Mayor of Town is really good. Yeah. Yeah, Mayor of Easttown's a good show. So, you know, at least there's that. Everyone, everyone mostly agreed that these shows are pretty good. Well, we'll, we'll it's not going to be everybody... like when Belfast wins Best Picture, right? Oh God. Well, we'll we'll see everybody in uh, at next year's 2022 Emmys when Ted Lasso wins and mm-hmm. Succession oh, that's, that's, that's wins and RuPaul's yeah. Drag Race wins and John Oliver wins again. Saturday Night Live wins again. Oh, we need and maybe to Hamilton John, will somehow win we again. We need to do a John Oliver takedown episode. Shame like, on you, Emmys! Always yeah, with just, the same just... categories. Just a, you know, a, a, a John Oliver, totally respectable show who's doing good work. We appreciate him, but just like completely not living up to the potential of what that show could be, I feel. Um, and has been, as we pointed out, I think five years ago now, really sort of <laughs> digging its heels into the same comedic territory over and over Shame and over on again. you, but Simba. There are probably more urgent problems in the television landscape than taking John Oliver down a peg or two. But yeah, um, that's why we're one of the little guys. We could do that. That could be yeah. Java, we, we love you. Have us on. All right, David, you recently completed a rewatch of The Sopranos. Why? Because Too Many Saints of Newark, the prequel film, is coming out, <laughs> and we're going to be talking about. Wait, it. what can is I, the Sopranos? I, the Many Saints of Newark? Can the I? No, no. Saints can I blow? Can I blow some minds, or possibly no minds, and just reveal how stupid my own mind is? It wasn't yeah, until today, writing my review of 
The Many the Saints, many of, New Saints York. of New York. After watching all 86 hours of The Sopranos over the past month, that you realize that I realized Sopranos. that oh. Moltisanti, which is Christopher and and I guess now uh, Dickie's last name, uh, translates to Many Saints. Moltisanti. Ah. Of course. Jesus Christ. Hey, the Moltisanti of Newark. Yeah, I mean, I was like, there's like, because there's a gang, um, there's like a Black Street gang in the Many Saints of Newark uh, that Leslie Odom Jr.'s character is involved in called the Black Saints. And I was like, oh, okay, there's some saints. <laughs> like, this was just today where I was like, duh. There's a, there's a lot of saints. <laughs> Stupid. Um, and like, one of the first lines in the movie is like, Moltisanti's a religious name. And I was like, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah. Whatever. Um, today anyway. we call them Many Saints. Yeah, uh, I'm real dumb. What's the, what's the I, one thing that we need to know from your Sopranos rewatch to inform our viewing of Many Saints of Newark? Those of us who will not be marathoning this show because we're too busy watching other Emmy winning television. It's a good show. Weeks. That's what that's what was my takeaway. <laughs> that's it. Oh, no, no, professional good. critic, David. Uh, pretty, I, pretty, pretty good. I liked it. Um, okay, I, okay. We're I mean, deeper. my big takeaway was that you actually should rewatch all 86 hours of the show before watching the movie, because I don't know to what end the movie would be enjoyable if you were not, uh, really Why? dotting every I and because the movie, I don't want to get too much into it. We're going to talk about the movie next week, but in, in broad strokes, the movie is kind of awkwardly suspended between being a very special prequel episode of The Sopranos and then also being its own full-fledged mafia movie about that starts with the Newark riots and puts Dickie Moltisanti, Christopher's father, up against Leslie Odom Jr. Um, in sort of a turf war that never really goes anywhere because the movie has very split priorities. Um, but, you know, you get, you, there's a lot of fun with seeing, you know, actors do their shtick as the uh, cosplaying and sort of like um, practical effects version of the Irishman of them all playing younger <laughs> versions of these characters. People go up to Tony um, and they're like, "Kid, you're gonna need therapy." I mean, they're yeah, oh my yes god, and do no. they really? Uh, not quite. <laughs> no, man. The the way I've described it in my review is a lot like rounds of a song, and like it's so much of it is about cyclical behavior and violence that a lot of the conversations, mm. even the jokes that are repeated word for word because they're passed down between these these people. In the Sopranos um, are heard here. It's very much about sort of reiterating that shape. But um, so yeah, if you really want to enjoy the movie, um, which is worth it, just for Alessandro Nivola's performance, Sticky Moltisanti alone, uh, you should probably watch the show. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think my big takeaway from the show is that uh, it has you know this is not a mind blowing observation. It has a lot in common with Mad Men. Uh, thematically, which Matthew Weiner, who came on as a writer and executive producer of The Sopranos in season five, went on to create. Uh, and there's a lot of overlap between these shows. But the one big thing that is expressed through very different ways and in very different eras is this concept of more. I think that um, David Chase, who created The Sopranos, takes it in a kind of Buddhist and spiritual direction that Don Draper only kind of flirts with for commercial purposes at the very end of, of uh, Mad Men. But so much of what is fueling Tony Soprano's insatiable desire for, for more, for more, for more, more power, more respect, more gabagool, whatever the fuck. And this is, uh, and, and uh, you know, enough is never enough. And there is this sort of like gaping maw, this like never ending possible, <laughs> like, you know, Olive Garden style uh, hunger 
that fuels him. And it reminds me, of course, of when Don Draper in Mad Men says, what's happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. And it's this really this, this sense of uh, a pathological need that is instilled by America in a place where you can, uh, everything is sort of on the board and there for the taking, as long as you don't mind taking it from somebody else. But as a flip side of it, you will never be full. Um, you know, I I, uh, I think that's something that is very present in Sopranos and is so interesting about the ending of the show, um, which it's so funny to me, the idea that someone who is our age and is like steeped in Western culture could not know what happens at the end of Sopranos. I'm speaking about my wife, who uh, has watched like three seasons of the show and just has no idea what happened at the end of the show. And I've tried to explain to her, I was like, it's like a, it was like a news story. It was like on the yeah. front page of the news. And she was like, I, why would I read spoilers for a show I hadn't watched yet? And I was like, this was bigger than yeah. that. Uh, yeah, but, but it, we weren't uh, online, like getting spoiled. It's wasn't true, actually but like I hadn't watched Sopranos then and I was like, oh, I knew exactly what happened. I don't, whatever. But, um, you know, the reason that I think the ending of the show was so brilliant is not because of the conversation that it sparked, which I thought was kind of a red herring about what happened. Um, and I'm couching my language because I think my wife is actually in earshot and I may as well not ruin this for her now. Um, it's because <laughs> it, it's a show that makes finality sort of impossible for this character. He's never going to reach contentment. He's never going to have enough. The only way to put a period on the show is to sort of stop at mid-thought in between the wanting and what comes next. And so while people have sort of thought about that ending for its ambiguity, my feeling about it is that it's actually the opposite of that. It's not ambiguous at all. And I'm not talking about the fate of the character. I'm talking about the the cycle that he's in, the rhythm that he's in, the way that his brain works, that we've been conditioned over 86 hours to realize that change is impossible for him. You know, he's got, he gets nowhere with Dr. Melfi. His therapy is a complete failure. She quits on him. It's all this pathological behavior. And really the only way to end it is just to cut your losses and come to the conclusion that it's going to end one day, one way or the other. Um, and I think the idea of going back to the well in a show that ended on a note of saying like, there will never be enough. So we have to make no more. It, it's such a human reflection of whether it's, you know, Casey boys at HBO or David Chase wants idea or whoever was at HBO and, and putting the idea in the other. Um, actually I have the press notes open in front of me so I could probably Are you uh, pull out from exactly the, the name of the executive yeah. who thought this was a good idea. Uh, it was Toby Emmerich, then the head of new line cinema who suggested the idea to David Chase. Um, but, uh, yeah, the idea of going back to the well, of making more, is sort of funny and ironic and so human and indicative of why Tony Soprano can never really stop. Not to suggest that making the many saints of new work is as much of a symptom of, like, a bottomless greed as Tony Soprano's behavior was. But also, you know, Tony Soprano was such a lovable character because he was a sociopath, sociopathic, sociopathic twist on behavior that we all recognize in ourselves to a lesser degree and hopefully a less homicidal one. Um, and, and so I think that there are very similar flows to this in Mad Men. I'm sure essays, books have been written about that and will continue to be. But um, I, I really, I love how uncompromising both those shows are and with the violent element of it, certainly Sopranos is towards that character without its redemption. Um, I think it's something that that uh, bad boys, what's it called? Breaking Bad was kind of photocopying in a way. And, and um, with the I did it because I liked it was like kind of uh, hedging its bets. Um, but The Sopranos goes whole hog. 
There were moments, even watching the show 13 years, 14 years after it finished airing, that shocked me in the fifth and sixth seasons, um, which I thought were the two best. They just I know that a lot of the more famous episodes are earlier, but those are the seasons. Maybe it's Matthew Weiner's sensibilities um, that really clicked for me uh, more than uh, even though I enjoyed the whole run. Um, sh- really sort of shocking stuff. The way that certain characters were killed, not just that they were killed. And then the whole like Kevin Finnerty thing. I mean, like there, it's just pretty excellent television that hasn't aged. And James Gandolfini's performance is just um, really in, in a class of its own. Uh, and it is one of the real the real highlights of the movie is just seeing how brilliant a job and how uncanny a job his son does playing the teenage juvenile delinquent. We'll get there. We'll get, we'll get there. We'll be the judges of that. Yeah. Um, I'll, let me weigh it. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, here's my here's, uh, here's my wrap up question. Yeah, let me ask sure. let me ask you this wrap up. Um, so Breaking Bad got a movie, and it's Sopranos it. got a movie. Are we going to get a Mad Men movie? Do you think? I I would bet. I'm not going to say I would eat a shoe. I'm not going to make that mistake. <laughs> um, but I you would I eat a loafer would, of the, from the sixties. No, I, I would bet. In, in you what would, I think you, would you be think a Matt Miner would go back to the Mad Men pool at some? Point. I would bet. $1,500. This is a lot of money for me. Not a particularly wealthy person, but I think this is a good bet that I would recoup my investment on. I could use towards Ace's college fund if he goes to college and if that's still a thing in 18 years. Um, He'll go to the match. I would bet $1,500 that Matthew Weiner is not going to make a Mad Men movie. Um, not going to make it. He's going to yeah. stand strong and never do anything with Mad Men ever again. Well, I, th- I, I didn't say so. that. To- okay. Animated. Uh, I think. I think prequel? that <laughs> animated Mad Men. <laughs> the Sopranos movie has been in the works Archer. for so long that it's hard to remember a time before it was, and to really accurately say whether or not I ever thought this was going to happen. But I don't remember being surprised that this was in the works because, and I say that as someone I guess who didn't really watch the show, I just because it was always kind of in the other. People were always talking about it, whereas there's been no discussion from anyone about a Mad It also movie. feels like history is important to these characters and, and there's more to, to dig into there. And with yeah, Mad Men, I mean, we, Mad like, Man we already Man... know the backstories and, we, and they're kind of like right. I mean, floating the point through of Mad time. Man is that yeah. it's an invented history that starts with Dick Whitman going to Vietnam or Korea rather. Um, yeah. And uh, in The Sopranos, there's a constant talk about Dickie Moltisanti and Johnny Boy Soprano and what Junior did when he was younger. And there is a history there waiting Maybe to be Maybe Old explored. Peggy is a movie. That's what I would do. Pe- like Peggy, the movie. Peggy. It's Peggy. Um, it's Peggy. Sure. Anyway, that was a tangent. Old, it's called Old Peggy. Old Peggy. It takes, takes place in the Old 90s. Lady Peggy. It's kind of like stranger, Logan, but it's Peggy. Stranger things have happened than a, than a Peggy stranger things on Netflix news. about what happens after Mad Men. And that would, uh, I don't know who's going to take me up on my bet, but um hopefully no one because i immediately regret that <laughs> I, I can't afford to pay i would welch on that uh all right all right anyway. we, i'm really feeling the loss of katie here i'm wrapping this okay. up we're moving on next week okay. we're talking about the sopranos movie yeah yeah you can stay tuned next week for more of this this is the prequel we should have ended that segment with a sharp cut to black Macho! Yeah! Gentlemen, I want to read to you from the background section of Cry Macho's <laughs> Wikipedia page. Oh dear. I don't know if you guys knew this, but I think our listeners need to know this. 
And Richard Nash's Macho is a screenplay rejected twice by 20th Century Fox in the 1970s. As a result, he reworked the material into a novel and had it published as Cry Macho on June 11, 1975. After receiving positive reviews for the novel, Nash pitched the screenplay again, claiming that he did it without changing a word and sold it to Fox and several other studios before his death in 2000. Blah, 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 blah. Clint Eastwood was officially asked to play this character in, 1990, in 1988. He said no. He suggested Robert Mitchum, who was still alive at the time for the role. Uh, they turned him down. In 1991, this movie started filming, actually, with Roy Schneider in the lead, but they didn't finish production for some reason. Then Burt Lancaster was next in the lead role. That they just gave out. up. They just went yeah. home. Like, eh. <laughs> just, you know what? I'm not, I don't want to make a know. movie today. <laughs> it says filming began in Mexico with Roy Schneider as the lead, but production was never completed. And then there's two links, but I'm not going to link through while we're on the podcast. But I definitely want to check that out. Uh, Burt Lancaster, Pierce Brosnan, Arnold Schwarzenegger was giving the option in 2003, but decided, you know, instead to be governor. And then um, uh, he was going to do it after uh, he, you know, ended his bid as governor uh, with Brad Furman to direct. But uh, not his bid. He was the the governor. Uh, Remember that? I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, But after his divorce with Maria Shriver and uh, the scandal uh, involving his son, uh, he drop the project entirely so that's why finally here in october 2020 wow. clint eastwood circled back around uh to the cry macho script he does have uh nick shank i believe his, his go-to uh, guy name is yeah who the grand torino and the mule guy he came back and worked on that script from the 1970s but can you tell i can't cry macho is a really fucking weird movie <laughs> um uh, Patches, yeah, what, hap- what happens weird. in Cry Macho? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about what happens in Cry Macho, which is pretty simple and not too much. Um, so it stars Clint Eastwood, who is, I believe, 91 years old. <laughs> and he seems just like gliding along in this movie. It's a very surreal performance. You know, Clint Eastwood is not a method actor. The first I don't thing think Clint Eastwood does in this movie is show up to work. <laughs> I just want to point that out. <laughs> he just, he just <laughs> walks in. And th- so it, the year is 1979. So it is a, it is a period piece. Although um, you can't really tell. There just aren't. Yeah, phones. they don't give you um, any years. They just don't show you any cell phones. No, they tell you 1979. I was just like, but there's nothing standing out about like, this is the seven, late 70s or something. Um, Clint Eastwood plays a, a former rodeo star. And we get a little like snippet of his crash on a bull at some point like from the vantage point of a newspaper oh very early on the first 10 minutes of this movie are written horribly like he shows up he says nothing he makes a bad joke we go back we transition into a newspaper where we get to see the clip i thought we're already pan we're already panning over newspapers then it shows him watching the sunset. Then it fades to black. Then it says one year later. Then the movie starts. As I, newspaper, as I will. Newspaper uh, exposition yeah. is the best kind of exposition. I will maintain <laughs> Yeah, the whole movie has this kind of like Disney Channel original movie aesthetic. And I feel like that goes along with it. Like, what is the, the loveliest, gentlest way we can convey tragedy in through exposition? And, and there it is, a, new, a nice newspaper clipping that comes to life. But yeah, we jump ahead one year and... Mike's boss, Howard Polk, played by America's dad. Sweetheart. America's sweetheart. Yes, America's sweetheart, Dwight Yoakam, (laughs) uh, is like, get my 13-year-old son. Now, Dwight Yoakam, 
also old. I have to agree. He's 64. Apparently he has a 13 year old son in this movie, but uh, he tells uh, Mike Clint Eastwood to get his ass down to Mexico and get his son Raffo um, and bring him across the border. And he finds Raffo like fighting with at a cockfight and with his rooster named Macho um, and wants to bring him home. And it's really just about the two of these guys taking a little road trip across Mexico, meeting a bunch of different people like Raffo and Mike teaches Raffo to ride a horse. And then they meet a nice lady. And well, her, her entire family has died and she's now taking <laughs> care of her granddaughters and, and they have they grandchildren, multiple meals. I feel like we see them eat dinner multiple <laughs> times. <laughs> well, where, where the... were you? Where were you when you realized that cry macho is about a, is a movie about a rooster named macho? I mean, I, the trailer was, I, I oh, got spoiled, really? I guess. I, I shouldn't have watched emailed, previews. I emailed Warner Brothers after I saw the movie, and I was, I emailed both the actual Warner Brothers, and I was like, Jack, <laughs> the other guy, like, is it a spoiler, would you say, that the rooster is named Macho? Because I feel like I can't write my review without mentioning that several times. Yeah, and I was surprised like, that... Uh... The, they were like, it's in the trailer, it's fine. I was like, okay. I was surprised that... That Cry Macho has a lot in common with Every Which Way But Loose, that movie where Clint Eastwood yeah. is hanging out with a orangutan for like the whole time. Um, but it's yeah, it's the boy, it's Clint Eastwood and it's a rooster uh, in a car for a lot of the movie and just chilling. And it's interesting to hear all that I mean, backstory, it's... Dave, because you would think that this is like it might have like a really heavy idea that they need to put on screen or that this would be. I don't know, like, um, uh, or a true grit for a really aging actor or some like heavy part. It's not, yeah. it's, a, it's a gentle movie. I don't know what drove people to try and get this story on screen over and over and over again. Cause the way Clint Eastwood shoots it is like the way Clint Eastwood shoots a lot of things, which is just kind of like this gentle feeling. It really did feel kind of like a TV movie. I wonder if Clint Eastwood saw the writer or some of these other more poetic Westerns of, of late. Um, and was like, I could do that. And then, and made, this movie which it goes down easy like i don't think it's a bad movie but there are people who go hard for clint eastwood i'm not sure i can go hard for cry macho i'm not sure i can feel much of anything and it's it's truly like a lifetime original movie or a dizzy original movie or something it's very strange Cry macho would have been notable and i would have told everybody to watch it if instead of clint eastwood it was a life-size marionette because they've struck that would this be movie. weird <laughs> yeah no well, they, someone someone's still this... high off a net <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, exactly. Okay, two things my problem with structures movie. One is the marionette thing. It's structured so your protagonist walks into a room, people act at him, he makes like a grunt and walks out of the room. He's ninety one like, years old. I know. No, I'm not I'm saying that like if you're gonna structure a movie like that, it makes things like Rafo's mother look fucking ridiculous as characters. And Raffo's first of all, that character Yeah, Rafo's <laughs> modern life. First of all, that character that is not good. good to begin with. Uh, but second of all, she looks even weirder. One, because the ages don't like fucking match up. And so like she Dave, was obviously I very I young. I need to remind you that in The Mule, which was made three years ago, Clint Eastwood had two three ways. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, I'm someone always... does someone does try to seduce him in this movie. I and it's say, I'm yes. like, no, I hope this happens. This, this is beautiful. And the only most the most seduction you could get is them looking at each other while he's sitting down. And then like the shuffle dance, which is the most he can move. It's so weird. Okay, this movie. What are you talking like about? So... There's a scene where one lady, Rafo's mom, is like hanging with her shirt down and being like, "Please come over to this bed and do me, Clint." Yeah, and he's standing there, 
I mean, he's having a drink. Were you were you were you talking about? Uh, I was talking about the nice. Uh, the You're nice about... <laughs> uh, cantina owner. <laughs> yes, she also. Well, that's a sweeter relationship. Yeah, yeah. Either way, the it's so. It's not that this is a bad cowboy movie plot. Like it's so basic by the numbers cowboy movie that. But it's it has therefore nothing to like make it distinct. Eastwood doesn't have a performance. There's one monologue that he attempted to act during and it was conveniently when they could like tip a hat down over most of his face uh and like play off his old man tremors as emotion so that i think really i think you're i think you're not giving him enough credit i mean this, this is not uh grand torino where he's truly grunting on his front stoop and pointing a shotgun at people he there is quite a bit of dialogue i feel like he's engaging He's the star of the movie, for Christ's sake. But he it's almost like mumblecore, the way that he is anti-performance. It's its really kind of like yeah, showing yeah. up and anti-performance talking. Anti-performance. And it's yeah. not, it's not, everyone, everyone else in the movie is like acting or like, and, and getting into character. And Clint right. Eastwood is there being like, I don't know, ride the fucking horse. Well, it's like none of his character development happens on screen because it's in the past. And then the weirdest fucking decision He's driving along with like the kid and the the scene starts with him going, think I'm starting to like you, kid. I'm like, that's everybody who's written a movie knows that's a punchline when the kid does something cool. That's how the scene starts. And then they're just on the road and then their truck gets stolen by random Mexicans. Everyone else in Clint Eastwood now, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, fair. Okay. Second thing about this movie that would have made it better. No Mexicans, orcs. Uh, That would be very different. That would be bright. Yeah, no, I mean, I would take it because <laughs> you want Clint Eastwood really to make bright. Yeah. What, what, what sort of understanding of late 1970s, early 80s Mexican culture do you think anybody who was enjoying now, this movie here's or the making thing. this movie had? Here's what I did get out of this movie. Is this Eastwood's anti-Trump film and like definitive line in the sand against MAGA and like, fuck you, all of you bastards who think machismo is everything and trump machismo is everything and actually i'm going to go like find humanity in mexico where you think everyone is scum is this Mm -hmm. him being like everyone republicans who follow me and think i am an icon for you no i'm not and this and cry macho is the response to that from the trump years I mean, given I that mean, the movie's been in the uh, works since before we were, we were born, uh, but know, not, but I, only, I, I only because of to find a point on it, but not, not with Eastwood. Well, he's no, I mean, no oh, but he's well, been I mean, involved he was, for a while. Yeah, he was like they gave him a pass in '88, and he decided to do another Dirty Harry instead. So, like, I because this I movie only I has one line in it where I'm like, oh, I guess this is it, where he actually talks about being macho and like why it doesn't matter or like what's a movie about how yeah all that shit that you people waste their lives over uh particularly men you know stuff that that tends to fall on that side of the the gender divide are uh are wasting their time puffing up their chests for no good reason while all that really the only happiness a man can find in this world is a is a woman in a remote mexican town who has eight grandchildren it's 40 years younger than you and still make out in her kitchen that's yeah, uh, no. great. This is a fine Slow cowboy story in the front of a restaurant. <laughs> but like ha- like a third good third of cowboy stories are in this mold, which is just like and it's not the old west anymore, boy. Don't make my mistakes. I mean, like, Clint I Eastwood would know. Um, yeah, exactly. Not only because he's made some of those movies, good he's he was there in the old west, you know, like he uh he knows this <laughs> stuff. But I, you know, I, I there is a real 
I don't know if if Macho's story is really the best vehicle for this, but and and again, it's all visiting rooster, a lot of the same themes. The, I mean the I mean the rooster when I say Macho. Yes, he's not a chicken; he's <laughs> Macho. Um, you know, I think that something like the mule told another you know animal, not a, not about an animal, but an animal pun anyway. Um, covered some similar ground, but there is something really sweet about how discursive this movie is, how distracted it gets on its way back to America, or it's just like, you know, the, the bullshit piles up and Clint Eastwood could sort of see the forest for the trees. He owes this guy a favor and he's just like, you know what? I'm going to peel left here. I'm going to see a new life for myself here. There's a welcome for me. There's so much of my life left to live. Um, I can be bitter about it. I can try and maintain the solitary, um, widowed man, cowboy routine, um, that's getting me nowhere and it's just going to let me die alone in my house or I can like, you know, surrender to what charms are left available to me and, and enjoy them. And yeah, there's, I mean, sure. It pushes back against a kind of machismo that we see, you know, the, the beta Clint Eastwood accepting a sort of beta male nineties, I suppose. Um, if you want to look at it through that lens, but, uh, yeah, I think there's a strength in that and a quiet dignity to that. And it's something that Clint Eastwood has explored many times in his previous films, particularly film films like Unforgiven. And um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it worked its charms on me, even if it's a very sleepy movie. The second half I found a lot stronger than the first. Once the movie sort yes. of makes that detour. Yes, and it needs to get down, over its like cartoon setup almost. Like it's right, just and there's like one action scene after that and nappy. it ends with Macho attacking the bad guys and it's over. Wacky fun. There's also there's also that scene where the kid's like, he beats me and he shows his bruises yeah. and the whole town's like, well, fuck that guy then. Oh, that was great. <laughs> Which I did appreciate. The, the way that they maneuver, uh, not that Clint Eastwood's character, Mike, should get in any fights because the whole point is not being macho. Like, I like how they sort of do that. But occasionally I feel parts in this movie where I'm just like, if it he wasn't Clint Eastwood in this role. Yeah, if it wasn't Clint Eastwood in this role this part could have been a little meatier. Uh, well, uh, but, uh, that's uh, the thing, is that, like, yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine what this movie would have looked like had it been made by any of those other people. Um, you know, release Where, Where's the Roy, the Roy Schneider Release version? the Roy Schneider cut. But uh, I think that you can't extricate the Clint Eastwood of it all from the movie. I mean, this is a movie that does not have a fraction of the same power um, if it isn't working with the Eastwood mystique, if it isn't you know, playing off of his screen image um, and the machismo that it has come to embody. Um, and yeah, and and the weight that he brings to a role like this um, and the fr- and the frailty also that he's able to, uh, to, to pull off a performance like this and direct the movie, even his own sort of one takes enough for me way at the age of 90, I guess now 91. Um, I think that's that's such an implicit power, part of the movie's power that it's kind of a needless thought exercise to try and peel it away from that. It could have been a needless thought exercise where 91-year-old 90-year-old director Clint Eastwood directed a puppet in an orc western <laughs> and it would have been 30 times better. I would like and That's all I'm saying. I would like to ask Clint Eastwood if he knows what an orc is and uh, that sounds fun. Yeah, uh, I know you what know, an orc is, kid. Well, he also yeah, doesn't know what an what Meryl Streep went looking for in an adaptation. 
<laughs> right, I saw that. That's like you do it. You do it. Be blood yeah. work at the Oscars, uh, probably. I don't and know. that's a pretty good orc orchid joke as well. And I'm <laughs> actually very surprised. Clint, what do you think of Gul'dan? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, talking about this movie, I, I think a lot about. We sometimes have my. I just about, have to. Um, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. My wife just no. came by, my knelt wife. by my microphone, and said that was a weird impression, and then walked away. So <laughs> the reviews have not been uniformly positive. <laughs> Do not use that voice in your private time later. Um, no, I was going to say, I feel like we talk a lot about entertainment for younger kids. And when we're trying to understand, like, is this movie appealing to all ages? And I'm, am I being too hard on kids entertainment when it is calculated for younger brains? Uh, and I'm, I'm now thinking, I'm like, is Cry Macho actually, are we just too young? For cry macho to really vibe with cry too macho. old too old to cry for cry macho no if anything we're too old no we're too young for cry macho like it is a geriatric no this film. movie's so dumb this movie's so dumb this is four kids by old man. my grandma loves dumb shit that's great so she might wow, love cry macho. That's what I'm saying. under the bus i think that uh <laughs> oh, I, my grandma loves ted lasso i was talking about ted lasso you know this sucks. movie has the same kind of purity and simplicity of a lot of great movie like, about old people. I think of like David Lynch's The Straight Story or mm -hmm. um, On know, Golden Pond. Matadayo or On Golden Pond or you know something that is really just it's crystallized like down card. to the bare elements of life and finding out at the end of the day after all that bullshit okay, sarah, sarah, that's all there really is. Um, it's sort of uh, it's a long flight from this to The Sopranos. I mean, it's, it's the sort of flip side of that coin in terms of Tony always wanting more and this character sort of finding peace with what he's able to scrounge together. Is this, uh, do you, do we know if Clint Eastwood is making another movie? Like he seems to make a movie every year or every two years. I wonder, but is this like his last movie? I don't even know. Will we know it, when it's the last? It feels Clint like Eastwood? it could be the last Clint Eastwood movie. He's really old. Well, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to get so serious. Do a Google here. Yeah. And then, oh, no, I'm not, not depressed. I'm just trying to figure out. Directing Black like... Panther 2 next. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Currently that should go well. Wakanda, kind of forever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would Rye guess Macho, this is yeah, it. This is, this is it. I mean, it is what it is. Wait, you said you didn't like Rafa. Let's end on this. What did you think of the kid? Is this kid legit? Is he going places? Rafa's fine. Rafa? He's not a character. Wow. Poor Rafa. They didn't... They did like he gives Rafo some good advice, and then he's like, you know, uh, off you go, kid. But this movie ends in a way where it's like, and then I gave the kid to one of two assholes and went back to the Mexican town for myself. Yeah, one weird thing about the movie, I mean, does it grapple with this and it kind of glossed over, or, or, or just I can't remember? Like, we learn that Dwight Yoakam's character doesn't just want his kid to come back because he loves his kid, he has this kind of financial relationship with his ex or this woman. The, the mother uh that if she gets her back that maybe he will get money out of her right yeah he wants uh the the split profits of the property investment they made and years the, ago and this blows things up for for mike and rafo but then it doesn't i'm sure like, that if you went to clint what is the implication like hey clint what what happened to rafo he'd be like oh <laughs> Rafa's <Okay. laughs> modern life. Is, uh, Stop asking me about orcs. Heffery, I don't know. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so Cry Macho, not meant to be overthought or thought again.
but it will be on HBO Max for a few days and then it will it's in theaters and it will be back on HBO Max in the far future. If you want a gentle night in watch cry macho under two hours, I'll give it that. I'll, I'll kick it that way. Some nice horses. Yeah, some nice horses and one good cut. That's going to do it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. Next week, Katie will be back. Uh, but until then, tell people. Oh, and we'll be uh, watching uh, many, The Many Saints of uh, Newark. Uh, so watch that so you, we can talk about it with spoilers uh, if we want. Anyway, where can people find more of your work around the internet till we get back? I am Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm also producing, as mentioned in the top of the show, the Galaxy Brains podcast with Dave Schilling and Jonah Ray. They just did an episode about Why the Last Man with the Bechdel Test podcast, Jamie, uh, or Bechdel Cast host, Jamie Loftus. It's really funny um, about girl bosses and what happens when girl bosses are in charge. Um, it's great. Uh, and you can also listen to old episodes of our show, what we were probably talking about TV eons ago about the, the crown. We did a crown episode. Go back and listen to that. It's all on fighting in the room. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich and on IndieWire. Uh, by the time you hear this episode, my assuredly very long review of the many saints of New York will be there for your reading pleasure, displeasure, um, you can find all of us on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. We'll read it live on the show, and you can see if that one listener's description of my vocal pattern holds up to scrutiny. <laughs> and I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also hear me on The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast for a couple more weeks. And I will be here representing uh, Katie. You could listen to her on uh, the Little Gold Men podcast, so she covers award season, and she is taking the uh, co-host seat with Richard Lawson on the Still Watching American Crime Story Impeachment podcast. There we go, Katie. I did it. Uh, if you made it this far, uh, you your keyword is Jedi Holocron. Uh, you can follow us all on Twitter at FITWR. We'll talk to you next week. I'm done.